BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Whether we're talking about new arrivals, whether we're talking about our existing unhoused, whether we're talking about working families who are experiencing increased housing burden, this is going to be a very key pillar in the Johnson administration in securing and leveraging as many resources as we can. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. My guest this week is one of the bright young stars of Mayor Brandon Johnson's new administration, former Illinois State Senator Christina Passioni Zayas, the mayor's now Deputy Chief of Staff. Christina, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Fran. Before we start on other topics, the Supreme Court has just ruled that colleges and universities must stop considering race and admissions, putting an end to affirmative action in higher education. With your extensive background in education, what impact do you think this will have for Chicago students? It wasn't really unexpected at all. Yeah, I think it will be um, a pretty significant impact. You know, part of the reasons why we have to implement policies as such is because structurally the way that the system was set up It advantaged a particular group of people who may be well-connected, who may come from a particular socioeconomic background, who have had access to opportunities that often people of color have been barred from. And so uh, it'll it'll definitely have some type of adverse impact on the number of individuals who may be able to get in, um, not because they don't meet the qualifications, but because they may not necessarily have the connections uh, to be able to get in. I, I just heard on the radio this morning that about 40% of the incoming freshmen are legacy um, admits at uh, Harvard. And, you know, that that says quite a bit in terms of being well-connected and being able to uh, step into those particular seats uh, just because you are related to somebody. Yeah, that legacy thing is really something. It means that if your dad went there or your mom went there or your grandmother went there or they both went there, that like the doors pretty much fly open and they do that because they get donations, right? Um, I'm not quite sure what the proportion is because of that, but, you know, I do think that that has to be examined a lot closer and it essentially shows that there is an unfair advantage just because you have a connection. Yeah. And it doesn't mean anything for like something like city colleges or does it this ruling? 
Um, I, I don't, I, I'd have to like examine that a little bit closer. I know city colleges, you know, has an admissions process that, you know, looks at a number of factors and, you know, obviously there's a lot of great connections. If you are a Chicago public school student, if you meet a particular, uh, GPA, um, grade point average that is, and if you have, you know, an extensive kind of record of contributions to community, um, you're able to get in and you're also able to get some of your uh, college uh, tuition subsidized. So I'm not quite sure to what extent it makes a difference in a two-year institution versus a four-year institution, especially what we call an Ivy League selective enrollment institution. And it's not like college isn't prohibited in the first place. The cost of these colleges is just so out of sight. And yet, are you worried that this ruling coupled with the cost of college will, will make fewer kids in Chicago be able to go to college and therefore maybe cause some kind of trickle-down effect on crime even? Well, you're you're drawing a, a pretty extensive line there. Um, I, I hope not. I sure hope not. <laughs> but you know, I mean, um, am, am I off the wall on that? Uh, I mean, I don't think there's you know one correlation to the other. I think what we're speaking to is access to opportunity, and when you have financial barriers, when you have barriers that have to do with policies that are based on the well-connected, then that limits your options as well as your opportunity. Your, it, it has an adverse impact on your circumstances and conditions. And then it ultimately affects your ability to be self-determined, self-actualized and self-sustainable, to get gainful employment, to get the credentials you need to be in gainful employment. All of those things point to problems and flaws in the system. So that's really where I want to put the emphasis on where we need to do work and where we need to improve access. As far as, you know, the cost of college, in my opinion, it is a public good. And I'd like to see us move towards, you know, college access for all and the elimination of tuition, um, because we know that that is one of the ways that people can achieve sustainability. It's not the only way. And, you know, I think more so than ever, we've been able to see that people are able to develop a pathway that is sustainable to gainful employment, to be able to contribute in a way to building up their communities and families without a college degree. But that's one of the pathways that we shouldn't have roadblocks to because of the finances and because of the well-connected. Yeah, City Colleges had that STAR scholarship under Rahm Emanuel, uh, but it was only for certain kids with a B average, I think, in city uh, in city schools. Is there anything more the city colleges could afford to do on that score? I know that city colleges have quite a few avenues um, into them. For example, uh, one of the bills I was most proud of that I was able to pass and also get $200 million appropriated to was the Early Childhood Access Consortium for Equity. This is a scholarship program that is actually statewide for both two and four year institutions to be able to remove all barriers, financial, um, you know, to, uh, uh, child care, transportation, and this is for our early childhood professionals who currently work within child care centers and early childhood spaces or who have been in the past, but they want to upskill and get their associate's degree, their master's degree, their bachelor's degree, or any type of credentials that are relevant to the field. 
those types of very specific scholarships really make a world of a difference and tap into a sector that historically has not been able to achieve their educational goals because of the barriers. So that's just one example. Plus, they have scholarships for students who are undocumented to be able to remove those types of barriers. City Colleges has actually been doing quite a bit of work to remove those financial barriers. You have been the mayor's point person on the migrant crisis, which continues with more and more busloads of asylum seekers every single day. Do you sometimes feel like you're drinking from a fire hose in this quest to house and feed and clothe and otherwise humanely provide for these people being bussed and flown here from southern states? It is a very fluid situation, but it's also a very complex situation that has historic roots in the problematic foreign policy of the United States government, which has essentially destabilized Latin American and Caribbean countries as well as their economies. So we're not surprised um, by the increase of individuals who are fleeing countries, literally traversing over several of them, enduring all kinds of crazy conditions with their children to get here to have different outcomes. I think it's just about an orientation shift to understand that if we are a welcoming city by ordinance and word, we need to be one by operation and application. And so that's the way that I'm approaching it um, with Mayor Johnson and the very uh, capable team that we have put together uh, to assure that we are actually living up to the letter of this ordinance. But the city has spent $101.3 million on their care between January and June of this year alone. 72% of that is on staffing. $51 $51 million in surplus funds appropriated by the city council uh, with great difficulty in a very racially divisive and cathartic debate last month will run out on Friday. What happens next? Yeah, so we have a kind of mix of funds. This was an inherited crisis. Um, and what we've been trying to do is kind of dig into the contracts and the arrangements that were made prior to us coming into office 45 days ago. Um, And so what we've learned is there is opportunity to shift those contracts more towards our community-based organizations who in our minds have, uh, you know, cultural congruency, they're linguistically responsive, they're trauma-informed, and essentially they've been doing this work without pay. Um, In many ways, they have been, you know, volunteering their time or reappropriating resources. And so we're looking to keep dollars in Chicago and we're looking to strengthen our uh, safety net here in the city by by reversing those contracts and and moving them towards uh, a community-based model, which will be uh, vetted through an RFP process uh, next month. And you also are trying to credential the volunteers. How do you do that? So we're exploring that as well, um, because again, a lot of the volunteers that may not even be affiliated with a community-based organization, they often are a part of a mutual aid network, which has been around since the beginning of time um, to, to look out for neighbors and to meet neighbors where they're at. And so some of that process is establishing um, you know, some kind of requisites and going through a background check, as well as making sure that you know we have some kind of baseline training um, around the crisis, around um, mental and behavioral health around how to support and then having some real discrete uh, job descriptions about complementing the staff that is uh, tasked with operating the shelters. 
this hourly rate pays these people in this uh, contract you're trying to get out of 60 to $235. You want to replace this with the nonprofits. Can you get out of the contract? And how much cheaper do you think you can do it? Is there an out clause? Um, there is, uh, my understanding, we're like investigating kind of the, you know, the actual language of the contract to see if we uh, can wind it down to see if we can exit it. That's still kind of to be determined. Um, and based on what, you know, the nonprofits bid will help us determine, you know, what is um, financially feasible, but not compromising quality. But what if you can't get out of it? Well, we will continue to look for all kinds of different ways to have some cost savings. Um, we're exploring, you know, our food service. We're exploring our security contracts. Um, we are exploring, you know, other sources of funding from the federal and state government um, so that we can, you know, figure out what is the best way to address this where we are fiscally responsible, but we also are centering the humanity of the individuals who are finding refuge in Chicago. So where will the money come from after the 51 million runs out on Friday? So what, what was approved with the $51 million was the estimated expenses from January through uh, June that had not been accounted for. We do have additional funds that the state is providing us, as well as what the um, federal government has initially quoted us from the FEMA grant that was appropriated several months ago. And so we're, we're working on um, being able to kind of move some funds around that uh, we will have to for sure pay out before the expiration of the fiscal year, which, you know, for the state is June 30th. For us, obviously, it's the end of the calendar year. And so we're, we're looking at all of our options to be able to continue to fund this, but again, at a rate that is much less than what we have been spending. So when do you run out of money after the state and federal money runs out? What, how much more do you have in reserve after the 51 million runs out? What, what have you got uh -huh. and what's the cushion? So that's currently being determined by our Office of Budget and Management at this point. And so I wouldn't have, be able to give you the details. In a memo to Chicago Alderman last week, you identified five potential new migrant shelters with a combined capacity of about 2,500, including a former Marine Corps Reserve Center and the Broadway Armory. You're also talking about opening a welcoming center at Clemente Community Academy, where you once worked. How many of these centers might be needed and how quickly might they open? So I'm really glad you brought that up um, because, you know, the memo that you have obtained, you know, essentially is a communication tool that we have co-created. Um, with our aldermanic working group because what we wanted to do was respond to their concerns about um, not having enough information as we are taking um, ideas under consideration. So those five sites that were quoted there are strictly that. They're under consideration. There hasn't in some cases even been a full walkthrough or a vetting of the space to determine if the quoted amount of individuals that can stay there is actually accurate. 
Um, so, you know, that is incredibly drafty form. And so, you know, just want to put that out there because none of those are finalized. And that is for the purpose of being able to have some conversations with alders as we explore the space, but then also as we plan for a community engagement process, because that is another imperative that our administration wants to make sure that we uh, do with discipline so that we can assure that people are fully aware of what's at stake and how we can move together to solve the problem. Um, the issue with Clemente is actually, it's a project that is, cre uh, that is being led by Chicago Public Schools in anticipation of the next school year. Um, as you may, you know, have been able to discern last year uh, when, you know, people were coming um, from the southern border and obviously they were coming with children, um, children were being enrolled in the middle of the school year. Therefore, there wasn't really sufficient time to plan nor resources to be able to meet the needs. So the objective of setting up this pilot um, enrollment center uh, is really to get in front of that so that Chicago Public Schools can better plan for the fall to discern where they can send students, assure that they have the right amount of teachers with the appropriate certification for bilingual education. If there's needs for special education, screenings will have taken place, and there will be a meeting with social workers to discern if there are additional um, wraparound supports that are needed for the families. So this is a pilot. And we're hoping to actually have a few more locations so that we can really get in front of uh, the school year and be best prepared to meet the educational needs of the young people that are coming um, with their families from the southern border. So Clemente's Welcoming Center might be one of several then? There's, there is some discussions about if there will be a need to open up more. We haven't identified those locations, and right now we're working on just teeing up and staffing the, the Clemente space. Do you see, uh, you know, the enrollment drop has been unbelievable, 80,000 fewer in, in the last 10 years. Do you see this migrant crisis as being the long-term answer to reversing that trend? So I think it's it's what's super interesting is we actually ended with more students in Chicago public schools this year than what we started with. And we can pretty much attribute that to, um, excuse me, the addition of, of young people that were coming from the southern border. Um, so that's definitely one way for us to repopulate. But I also think that, you know, there's, again, going back to that discussion around structural issues, um, I think we need to continue to double down on, on practices and policy that continue to make uh, Chicago Public Schools a space that is not just welcoming, but that is affirming for young people, that is um, really doubling down on bringing out the best in their talent and potential and assuring that our schools are resourced to meet the, the needs and the demands of a 21st century education that should be fostering critical thinking skills, that should be exploring careers and passions and ultimately rooted in affirming and culturally uh, relevant pedagogy for our young people. And as far as the five shelter possibilities, I understand that you're trying to communicate better with the aldermen and get them involved early on, because that was a huge problem under Lori Lightfoot, tremendous amount of lack of communication. But how many of those five do you think will be needed? I mean, if they, if they keep coming at this rate, won't you need some of them? 
we're we're going to continue to need space and it, and i think also i'd be remiss if i if i didn't say that we're going to also need space for our existing unhoused neighbors in chicago i think you know we have in general a housing crisis um that has been exacerbated uh, by gentrification and right now we're a little bit in a bubble because a lot of um, our kind of uh, support around housing has been funded by COVID relief dollars, and those dollars will be expiring in 2026. Um, that's why I was really pleased that, you know, the governor had put forth this um, Home Illinois agenda that's bringing about $350 million into eradicating um, homelessness uh, across the state. Chicago's actually going to be receiving uh, $15.3 million to go towards our existing unhoused population. So I think I think whether we're talking about new arrivals, whether we're talking about our existing unhoused, whether we're talking about working families who are experiencing increased housing burden, this is going to be a very key pillar in the Johnson administration in securing and leveraging as many resources as we can from the federal government, the county, as well as the, um, the state, and then doing what we need to do here in our coffers to stabilize our communities through affordable, high-quality and public housing. The mayor has been somewhat slow to deliver on the progressive agenda and for the progressives who put him in office. He granted 12 weeks of paid parental leave to teachers and paraprofessionals and others at, the CP, at CPS without demanding that it be negotiating it at the bargaining table. But uh, some of the other big ticket items like bring Chicago home, just what we're talking about here, the real estate transfer tax on high-end home sales that uh, will create a dedicated funding source for combating homelessness. Legislative leaders don't want to go along with it. Neither will the governor. The only other avenue then is a binding referendum. Can you get a majority to put this on the ballot? When will you move on that? And would it pass if it did? So I'd have to disagree with you that he hasn't been able to deliver on the progressive agenda. We've been in office for 45 days, and I think if he were to deliver on every single aspect of his platform in 45 days, I mean, gosh, that that is actually no. I mean, absolute. I mean, slow. If some people thought that we'd see action immediately, we'll introduce this and introduce that, you know, kind of like what some some football teams do when they script the first series of plays. We haven't seen that. Um, I, I still am. I'm gonna have to disagree with 45 days. Um, and I think you've been <laughs> around Chicago quite a bit. To I'm not quite sure much has moved in 45 days in any administration. Um, we have been assembling a team. We have been working really closely with our legislative body. We have been deep in our communities, um, refining plans, making sure that we are bringing people into the process. And actually, I think that is going to be the winning strategy to be able to get initiatives like Bring Chicago Home over the finish line. Um, so I, I, I do feel very confident that we're going to be able to deliver on that. And that's precisely why over the past 45 days, we've been meeting with various coalitions, various stakeholders to discuss the plans um, that he had campaigned on and, and will indeed deliver on. But we know that we can't do that alone. And we know that he is not a dictator and not going to impose without actually having 
a very um, spirited and engaged process with Chicago um, because this is all of our responsibility to be able to carry this forward. And it's not just a top down approach. It is, in fact, a bottom up. And that's what's going to be radically different about this administration. So will you move on a binding referendum and can you get the majority in the city council to do that, to get this on the ballot and would it pass if it did? So that is the, uh, one of the strategies that's under discussion. And, um, you know, if you've, I'm, I'm not quite sure how, how deeply you've gone into the legislative process. You're right in that you sometimes have to have a structured roll call and you do need to have some negotiations. Sometimes there's um, pieces of legislation that um, are introduced that, that may be introduced at one level of detail, but through the process you negotiate and you bring all stakeholders to the table so that you can identify where there are points of intersection, where there are points you're not going to agree on, and therefore mapping out what the timeline and the campaign, frankly, is to get it um, across, but I, I'm very confident that we will be bringing all stakeholders to the table to vet this proposal and to deliver for the people of Chicago so we can bring Chicago home. But it's going to have to be in a binding referendum. Yeah, right? the people will decide. Am I right? That's the only avenue now. Precisely. It's the people will decide. I, in fact, introduced yes. a bill. I introduced a, a, a very comprehensive housing bill when I was uh, last session that uh, we actually dubbed it, let the people decide, and it had components in there um, that had some binding referendums uh, for people to decide how uh, we will proceed in being able to um, assure that we have the revenue to be able to build the affordable um, housing units that are absolutely necessary to stabilize our communities. Are you negotiating with the real estate industry, which views this as obviously they view it as like a backdoor property tax increase to bring down the level of the increase, which is huge? Would you, might you compromise on that? We're going to be engaging all stakeholders in this process. And as I mentioned, those conversations are already underway. What about the subminimum wage? for tip workers, eliminating it, negotiating a compromise there that would allow the restaurants to phase this in maybe over five years or three years. Yep, another proposal and frankly, another bill I introduced and I was the chief sponsor. <laughs> Same, same process, same process. We'll be engaging all stakeholders um, so that we can assure that working people of all stripes um, are able to have a living wage. How long should the restaurants get to phase this in? I think that's still to be discussed and negotiated. I mean, as you as you know, that those are ongoing conversations. Uh, you do have to look at it from all four corners. Um, but our objective, like I said, is to make sure that we can have a stabilized workforce that is able to live with dignity, keep their homes, put food on the table, care for their families, um, and so we are very committed to making sure that we see that through the end. Friedman not trauma is another one. That's the uh, the mental health response to those kinds of emergencies instead of police. Yep, that's another one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have a checklist here. 
We had slow progress, but we've, I'm, I'm really proud to report we've met with all of these, these uh, various coalitions on this, and we're currently mapping out our strategy to be able to deliver treatment, not trauma, with reopening our mental health centers, with having um, a roving um, 24-hour service, perhaps even expanding our living room model. Um, those are all under discussion. Um, you can definitely expect a subject matter hearing uh, soon on that. We're, we're currently working out the details so that we can continue to educate the public about what the opportunity is and the various ways that we could um, meet the, the expectations of treatment, not trauma. So will we see the mayor reopen the mental health clinics in his first budget? And will we see... Uh, tax increases like some of the 800 million or how much of the 800 million that he promised during the campaign to fund some of these people investments? So all of those pieces are under discussion right now. We're currently um, putting together the, or refining the, the policy agenda in which we, you know, are evaluating what, uh, what we had said we would do on the campaign trail, um, aligning that with uh, recommendations or considerations, I should say, that'll be emerging from the subcommittees of the transition team and then uh, prioritizing and uh, assigning timelines uh, of which we can then deliver each of those points. So that's all, you know, under discussion, underway in our first 45 days. How difficult do you think it will be for Mayor Johnson to keep progressives happy? How realistic are they about the power of the politically possible? Are you in any way concerned that at some point they might get disappointed with the pace? So I think what's really important to acknowledge with respect to progressives, myself being one of them, you're never satisfied. Um, you know, status quo has not served us. And part of the, our positioning and our ideological framework is to really transform that and to recenter power in people. And so because the system was not designed to do that, there is a certain level of understanding of that things will take time. Does that mean that we put our feet up? Does that mean that we give up? No, that means we keep on pressing. It also means we continue to be dissatisfied because in many ways, we've got to get uncomfortable to get comfortable. And if we are comfortable, then that means that we are upholding status quo. And that's why this work, um, you know, is, is absolutely necessary. And, you know, it would, it would definitely be a concern if the movement that we come from stopped pushing and organizing to make sure that we deliver on the promise of our movement. And he's okay with that, you're saying. He's okay with that, even though he's been very deliberate. It's inherent in organizing. Organizing is partially antagonizing to push forward and make progress. You know, without struggle, there is no progress. And that is something that we've all adopted and understood as organizers who are now transitioning into governance. Is there any chance that they could turn on him? They'd be so unhappy with the pace, it being slow. Do you, are you concerned about that in any way? No, movement always has a purpose to continue to apply pressure. I mean, it's absolutely necessary. I, I'll even give you an example of when, you know, again, when I was in office, I, I often used as a negotiating tactic, you want to deal with me or you want to deal with the, you know, thousand people that I'm keeping outside of the Capitol right now. Um, <laughs> you know, it 
And they inevitably you. said, I'd rather deal with you, right? That, that's right. And so you have to help people understand that there is an enormous amount of pressure. It's not arbitrary. It is the pain that people have felt from not being able to live up to their fullest potential or provide for their family and community. We have to deliver on that. The status quo of how Chicago has been operating is not acceptable. And I think one of the advantages that we have as organizers being in office is understanding that inside outside kind of game that you have to play to really change and transform in a positive way. Governance that's centered on the people in people's lived experiences with people. How do you expect the mayor to handle the automatic escalator that Lori Lightfoot put in tying annual property tax increases to the rate of inflation? Will he keep that? That's a budget question that will be um, determined. We are just starting to embark on our budget process um, where we'll be engaging with all of the various stakeholders to design a budget that obviously will reflect our um, moral compass and um, set us up for um, solvency and uh, being able to continue to deliver on the on the promises that we ran on. Summer jobs, he promised to double, make them year round. He settled for only 2,000 more than last year and 8,000 fewer than four years ago. How long is that going to take? So that process is just starting. Um, you know, it's you just can't snap your fingers and all of a sudden jobs appear. Um, not to mention, just met with a group of nonprofit leaders who were just explaining to me all of the various barriers of just being able to process individuals, particularly young people, to be able to uh, legally work. Um, and so the fact that we've been able to bring on 2,000 more jobs and we've been able to expand the year-round jobs, that is a measure of progress. Um, and so we, we expect to continue to build upon that and uh, deliver so that we can meet that goal of doubling youth jobs. How long will it take, do you think? I think it'll take as long as all the stakeholders and, and the uh, bureaucratic processes uh, allow us to be able to move at a pace where we can demonstrate progress. The Guaranteed Minimum Income Program that was started by Lori Lightfoot is about to expire. Will it be extended or changed or expanded? What? So another budget question um, that we're working on, and we're also working really closely with the county, um, again, another bill that I worked on this past session to make sure that families who um, are receiving the guaranteed income are, are not adversely impacted where, you know, if they're receiving public benefits and they're receiving the guaranteed income, that does not block them from receiving public benefits. Um, so those are all pieces that we have to, you know, take under consideration, but definitely find space within our budgets to continue to advance because we know when we put money in the hands of families that historically have had limited access to economic resources, it provides a world of a difference with respect to stability in their households and access to greater economic opportunity. 
And you were the co-sponsor of a pension sweetener for police officers and firefighters that would have eliminated or at least chipped away at the two-tier system that has saved a lot of money. Uh, there's a pause in that. The mayor convinced the police union to go along with it. He's got a pension working group. We've had a million of them. What are they going to come up with? We actually haven't had a million um, pension working groups. This is actually well, we've had the commissions. I believe me when I tell you I've been around for decades and we've seen many and reports gather dust. This is different because it actually came out of the mayor's office in collaboration with the General Assembly and experts in the field. Um, and I think it was the right thing to do, especially that we are bringing in a new administration so that we can look at this from all four corners and make a really responsible decision and meet the, the needs of uh, trying to get to parity for um, our firefighters as well as our law enforcement here in the city. Right, but you need some funding sources. You need long-term funding sources. These funds are literally on the brink of collapse. 20% some odd funding levels <clears throat> is what they have. Yep. What's the and funding again, source going to be? What well, should again, it be? That's going to that's going to be another uh, discussion for the budget. And, you know, we're really thrilled. We've got some um, really amazing uh leaders in our in our financial department, our budget director, we have a new comptroller coming on board, we have a new CFO. Um, all of them are very well respected in the field and I'm sure we'll come up with different scenarios for us to consider so that we can fund this. Um, but that's still a discussion that's underway and precisely why the working group is um, working simultaneously while we are uh, designing our budget process. Christina Passioni Zayas, thank you so much for joining us. We covered a wide range of topics and we will have you on again and see how we're doing. And we will see you all next week. Thank you, Fran.